Welcome to the Plant Cunning Podcast, where we explore our relationship to plants, other people, and the mysteries of nature. Coming to you from the High Allegheny Plateau in central New York, we are your hosts, A.C. Staubel and Isaac Hill. Episode 2, Magical Herbalism. In today's episode, we speak with Violet Bertelson about magical herbalism, spiritual cleaning and protection, and lots of other interesting things. Violet is a magician, herbalist, and writer. I hope you enjoy the episode. Well, welcome, Violet, to the Plant Cunning Podcast. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to have you here. Yeah. We're, uh, we're interested in talking with you about all sorts of topics, but in general, magical herbalism. So, what was your first memory of a plant? My first memory of a plant is indeed my first memory in general. I have a memory of some tomato plants in my parents' garden. And um, from there, it's all plants all the time. Like, um, my next memory involves uh, picking mulberries. And uh, one of my um, subsequent memories involves a cucumber plant. So lots of gardeny memories of plants. So it's fair to say that plants have, have been with you since, since the beginning. I would say so, yeah. So how did you come, I mean, so it seems like you've always been on the plant path in a mm-hmm. certain way, but so how did that become a conscious intention of yours and um, how did you come to plant magic? I think like many herbalists and um, people who are into the magical side of plants, I came to it through marijuana. (laughs) (laughs) Like, um, I think I was about 12 the first time I smoked marijuana. It was, it was a bit of a bizarre scene. And after I smoked it, I tried to get someone to sell me marijuana for many years, but people thought I was too sketchy. But that changed (laughs) big time when I was turned 16 and I started to get it on the reg. Um, So, and... I started to smoke marijuana and smoke marijuana all day, every day, um, because it created altered states of consciousness that I really enjoyed. And while this might be trite and banal simultaneously, I think that (laughs) um, the unfortunate defined uh, magic as changing consciousness and according to will. And so in a real sense, in a real materialist sense, taking a drug changes consciousness in accordance to will. And so when I... um, also, marijuana is really expensive. Like, you know, you compare a pound of marijuana to a pound of ginseng, and the mar- pound of ginseng is way cheaper than a pound of marijuana. And so I got interested in other ways of getting high. And so, I, in a certain sense, the prohibition prices of marijuana introduced me to mugwort. And so, like, I was reading Arrowwood.com, which is a website that chronicles a bunch of druggy experiences, and they mentioned smoking mugwort. And so I started to gather mugwort um, and uh, roll it into the joints and smoke it and uh, have it take it to um, improve my dream life, mm-hmm. which I don't think it really did much, but it definitely got me on the path of thinking about plants other than marijuana as also having the capacity to change my consciousness according to will. Um, and so I began to think of chamomile and mint as also um, plants that would change my consciousness. And they may be like, have been less spectacular mm-hmm. than marijuana or psychedelic mushrooms or what have you, but nonetheless, they had that capacity. 
And so I'd say that my um, interest in plant magic really came out of being a teenage stoner. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a pretty common experience, actually. It's, yeah. That's really, that's cool. So... I, I have one quick question first. Yeah. Um, who is Dion Fortune? Dion Fortune um, was one of the predominant prominent, um, and preeminent uh, occultists of uh, the early 20th century. She wrote the mystical Kabbalah, she wrote psychic um, self-defense, and a whole slew of other books that introduce occultism and um, define the theories, especially of Golden Dawn magic. And so she's a. I found her to be a really good source on learning about magic, and uh, she's also a lively read. She's written some she's novels. She's hilarious. Yeah, she's really yeah. funny. Mm-hmm. Um, she's very dry and British. Right. Like and she, I like her too. She kind of has this sort of like unfashionable imperialist tone but whenever she does it uh, she does that i just imagine like one of those monty python guys in drag reading her Uh, voice that's great (laughs) (laughs) and then i just laugh at her um Mm -hmm. so that's that's the unfortunate so when when people usually consider magic um and herbal magic though uh marijuana may fit the bill technically (laughs) Mm -hmm. it's not necessarily what, what people think of i well at least what i think of so, how, what other kinds of, uh, when did you start using, using herbs consciously in, uh, in a more, in a way that, like, an occultist would? That happened after I got really into herbalism, and I read Matthew Wood, who covers in some of his work, uh, the magical applications of herbs. And one of the herbs that he really likes is cinquefoil, which are the various potentilla species. And cinquefoil he uses specifically for removing enchantments that are designed to interfere with someone's work, like be it spiritual work or professional work. And so mm-hmm. he believes that it resolves boundary tensions, be it legal or a property or um, with someone um, having malicious intent being sent towards another. So I started to carry cinquefoil and use it in that method, and I found it really effective, especially when there's issues with hierarchies. Like, it's the herb you want if you need to talk to your boss about, like, working less. You know, it's the sort of herb that, um, it's like also called five-finger grass, and the basic idea in, in hoodoo practice, it's used for doing all the things that five fingers can do. So it's used to gain manual dexterity, to, like, have, like, spirit hands working for you, but really, I consider it the preeminent herb for maintaining good boundaries, especially when there's pressure from hierarchy. And where do you find cinquefoil in the garden, in the wild, in the woods? You find it in the fields. It's mm-hmm. a, it, like sulfur cinquefoil, uh, Potentilla recta, is a, considered to be a noxious weed. It mm-hmm. looks, the leaves look like marijuana, but it has little egg, um, kind of butter, buttery um, colored mm-hmm. flowers that have five petals. It's in the rose family. Um, it's bland. Uh, I I think it makes a really lovely tea, and I think it combines well with uh, rosemary and uh, maple syrup. Um, and, and interesting as a tea. Yeah, and I also feel it was used. Um, Matthew Wood believes yeah. that the properties of cinquefoil are very similar to that of agrimony magically, and I believe agrimony was used by um, Doctor Bach as one of his flower. Uh, uh, flower uh, essences specifically on the indication of being tortured to catch the breath and I find that 
was really true with cinquefoil in my relationship with the plant where I felt that cinquefoil, like one day I was by this like cattle pasture and I found some cinquefoil and I picked it. I started holding it to my chest like a lover and I realized that I was constantly um, holding my breath on the exhale. And so I, and I feel like that, uh, and I was doing that specifically to avoid processing grief. And so I feel that the plant also helped teach me that specifically. So it has a relationship with the breath as well. So if you were using it to talk to your boss, per se, would you um, carry some with you? Would you have a tea before you did it? Like the, the practical applications? Yeah. Um, okay, I would first perform a divination mm -hmm. and think about the ethical ramifications of it. Mm -hmm. Like, is this something you'd want to be done to you? Very um, useful point, yeah. Yeah, so, uh, but what if, if the answer were yes, like, I mean, if you were to say, you, if you were to make the ethical choice that you were not going to interfere in other people's lives ever again, um, and you could carry it with you, mm -hmm. you could drink it as a tea, mm -hmm. um, the way I would do it is I would take a spray bottle of the tincture and spray the space, mm -hmm. um, like aerosol it, um, but again, it's a real magical act and I would definitely think about the implications before doing it. So that goes in a little bit into the theory of magic. So um, what is your theory of magic and how did you come to that? Like, why, how, do you, how do you use magic and, and uh, yeah. Um, okay, um, the theory of magic basically is that, I mean, you can't really do a, 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 like a simple theory of magic. You can define it as I did before with uh, Dean Fortune's dictum, mm -hmm. but basically the idea of magic is an entire model of the cosmos that the, basically the cosmos is conscious mm -hmm. and every aspect of the cosmos is conscious and related in its consciousness in intricate ways right. and so once you accept that if you accept that uh, a the water you're drinking has its own consciousness if every rock has consciousness if every plant has consciousness if you have consciousness and this consciousness affects reality then you have a model in which magic makes sense mm. and so that's how i would define magic magic it's not so much a thing as a model for understanding the cosmos how would you define plant magic plant magic uh is one of the traditional branches of Western occultism. Um, it is um, the most common branch. So there's natural magic, there is astrological magic, and there's ceremonial magic. Mm -hmm. And basically, within the Renaissance system, natural magic is the magic of plants, of stones, of springs, like all the healing springs. That's a branch of natural magic too, mm -hmm. of sunlight, of moonlight, mm -hmm. um, of all things that are essentially natural and they would say in the sublunary um, sphere so um, the in the old-timey system of understanding the cosmos you have the earth at the center of the cosmos and you have the moon above the earth and between the moon and the earth is the sublunary sphere mm -hmm. and so the objects of the sublunary sphere are the the objects that have natural magic and so a plant has natural magic and they believed a plant had natural magic because it had affinities in the great chain of being so saint john's ward has an affinity with saint john's mm. saint john uh the baptist who was sort of was the green man of um christian europe he was 
um, the solar figure um, or the summer figure to Christ's winter figure. Um, and he's also associated with Balder in um, Norse mythology. One of the names of St. John's Wort is Balder Wort. So St. John's Wort has this affinity to divine beings and it also has an affinity towards with the sun. Mm -hmm. um, and so the St. John's Wort participates in the hierarchy of the great chain of being. And so it one could say it gathers the force of the sun, or you could say that it is a window into the consciousness of the sun, but the end result is the same. Using it brings the solar energy um, or solar energy to bear. So if you made a tea of St. John's wort and you brought, washed your floors with it, you would bring the solar energy to bear. If you put it in a little, you know, bag around your neck, you would bring the solar energy to bear in your aura. If you put it on like a, you know, a bunch of under window, you'd bring the solar energy to bear. And that's how it's used um, in traditional European peasantry. They, on St. John's Day, which I believe is June 23rd, they would hang bunches, they would gather the St. John's wort with, with a bunch of other herbs. They would make a huge bonfire in um, the town square. They would throw the St. John's wort and other herbs and they would put their cattle through it to remove curses from cattle. Like in pastoral societies, people mm -hmm. were oftentimes more concerned about the curses of cattle that people would put on cattle than on people. And they'd also hang it um, on their windows and on their doors to protect their houses energetically. Um, and so that is sort of plant magic. It's a branch of natural magic that works with the specific properties of plants. I love how you're talking about the solar energy. All of a sudden the sun just like came through the window in a really bright way. It was, it was right. warming. Yeah, and that's the thing. With, ma with the magical cosmos, those sorts of synchronicities are meaningful. But yeah. in the materials cosmos, they're just coincidences. Mm -hmm. And that's the difference. Mm -hmm. Like, um, not to give um, more credence to the occult worldview, um, but just to uh, help explain to the listeners the different valences of meaning. Mm-hmm. And so this, this interconnection of this great chain of being, that might be why somebody would want to uh, consider the ethical ramifications of a magical act before they, they did it, right? Yes, exactly. Um, to work with the magical energies, they're going to appear in your life. Right. Um, that's the only, like they ground through your body. Like with the example of the sinkafoil, like you, if you were spraying, you know, a workspace with sinkafoil tincture, right? That's you doing that. It happens in your experience. Like, um, and the thing about time is, it happens in this irreversible way. Like Oswald Spangler talked about how time is irreversible, and so it has this alien, hostile quality to humans. I think he was dead on. Mm -hmm. Like so, you know, uh, if if you do magic without considering it, you could really regret it because it like enters into your experience and it's irreversible as time. Are there like levels of magic that you find that you like? This is a rather safer, benign level of magic, and then this, you know, this is a little bit more high experience level and ramifications that you have to consider yeah so i would say that natural magic is the safest uh and least um aggressive in terms of how it manifests in one's life like it works and you should consider it but it's base. it's rather passive on the part of the human right you're taking these natural things and you're putting it someplace where it'll have an effect essentially like calling on actual spirits with specific specific formulae is much more powerful and much more dangerous. And so, in terms of the actual techniques, 
natural magic is safer. Mm -hmm. I also think intent is really important. Uh, if you're doing magic um, for like blessing or healing or protection, that's going to be a lot that's going to show up in one's life a lot better than doing stuff for like cursing or destruction and then um or harm and that's the thing too within the magical cosmos even the worst beings have the right to exist um even the worst people have the right to exist everybody has good qualities and bad qualities and so there's never really within like at least the unfortunate world like um there's never really any justified harmful magic from a human perspective because uh, it one could always be affirming the good rather than participating in destructive energies. So from this perspective, this is why uh, when she, in like in the magical battle of Britain, she was uh, doing blessing work for Great Britain rather than cursing the Nazis and Great Britain won while as the, the Nazis were cursing Great Britain and they lost. Absolutely. Right. So, um, another thing that, that this goes into is uh, banishing rituals mm -hmm. and uh, cleansing and other, other ways of natural magic cleansing. Mm -hmm. and, and you've said before that, um, well, and from you know, my experience too, like, banishing rituals can be a lot more powerful than uh, natural magic Mm -hmm. cleansing but maybe not everyone wants to be doing those i actually disagree i think that if you have someone who does not have a basis in banishing rituals i think a floor wash is way more powerful okay. than banishing rituals so if you take that saint john's word and you make a strong tea of it put in a mop bucket and a fresh mop bucket with a fresh mop and fresh mop head and mop a floor uh, going from east to west, it's going to have an immediate effect on the space. Uh, with a banishing ritual, it will have an immediate effect on your aura, but it also requires the person who's doing it to have some facility in visualization and also a connection to whatever divine energies they're calling in. With what, What's great about natural magic and folk magic techniques in particular is that they're fast, cheap, you know, and uh, dirty. Like, you can do them without having um, any belief. You can do them without having a connection to the plant spirits. You can do them without um, having anything but the material itself. Like, you'll get a better result if you have a connection with the plant spirit, but because of the very nature of the theory that these plants are windows or, um, like, batteries that are filled with divine energy, you can just use them. And so why a new mop? Or... Well, the basic idea is that if you're doing a serious cleansing, yeah, you want to have it all be symbolically clean going into it, mm -hmm. is my understanding. Right, and, and uh, banished ritual, you have to also, like, the, the power builds up after doing it daily for a long time. Right. And it also might open you up to some other, uh, like, inner senses that wouldn't have to necessarily deal with if you're using natural magic right exactly like most people throughout history have worked with natural magic it's very like there's some even some little remnants of it that you still see like uh the whole hanging of mistletoe i think of like it's like some archaic um magical thing like the taking of salt and throwing it behind mm -hmm. the left shoulder sure. uh there's all sorts of even using something like pine salt 
<laughs> has a like discrete magical basis. Mm. Uh, so the natural magic was something that was done as a matter of course in the ancient world. Ceremonial magic was something that was done by professionals. And even in places that didn't have monotheistic prosecution um, and persecution, uh, there was still, most people are not cut out for ceremonial magic, but pretty much everyone can employ natural magic to their benefit. So if uh, somebody wanted to do a cleansing of their home right now and they don't have a St. John's wort tincture, but maybe they do have pine salt, are there, are there any other kitchen herbs that might be common in the cupboard that people could use for cleansing? Uh, bay leaves are very traditional. Uh, they've been used since ancient Greek, Greek times. Uh, they're sacred to Apollon, who uh, is associated with healing and also with driving out malign spirits. And they're also um, sacred to most of the Olympians. They're actually, more, one could consider them as a symbol of the Olympians in general. And they bring a really strong solar energy to bear. They can be made into a tea, they can be put on the floor a floor and then just sort of swept out, uh, let it, having them touch all the spaces. That's mm -hmm. um, I learned that from Catherine um, Ironwood's book on um, hoodoo herbal magic, and it does really work. And they can also be used for making holy water, which is when you take a bowl of water and you t grab a couple uh, bay leaves or some other material and you set them on fire and you dunk them in while they're still in flame, so you, the water and the flame meet, wow. and then you pray over it that it may purify all pollution. You can invoke a deity or pray to a deity, or you can just do it that just by prayer, mm -hmm. praying. Um, and it really works. You can use different plant material. It's not really important. Like people in Australia use a lot of eucalyptus leaves. Mm. Um, eucalyptus leaves work. Like mm. pine needles, you can make into a tea. Yeah, you could use common. yeah. You can use cinquefoil mm -hmm. um, as well. Uh, and so then, when once you make the holy water, what what do you do with it? You take it and you just sort of you can sprinkle it around a space. Mm -hmm. You can sprinkle it all through your aura. Mm -hmm. You can um, use it in any sort of cleaning application. And it uh, kind of removes the miasma of a space. Excellent. Yeah, that that kind of seems pretty helpful, uh, especially these days when there seems like there's a lot of miasma in the general uh, you know, world. Mm -hmm. Would would you say that's true? And and um, speak maybe about like psychic contagion or yeah, speak the, to the times that we're yeah. in right now, summer twenty twenty. Yeah. What's happening? Yeah, I think we're living in a very spiritually dark time. I think that we're at the for a long time people have lost faith in Christianity. And with Christianity for um all of um its problems did provide a ritual um space for people to um connect with divine energy. And so with like the Catholic Mass, it was a really powerful um, experience prior to the restructuring of the Mass. Um, I think it's what was Vatican II it's called. In Vatican II, they restructured the ritual, um, and it was in like 1977, I believe, that they restructured the ritual so it lost all of its magical power. And so basically, you went from having a lot of churches and a lot of places of worship directly invoking divine energy to just having like guitar masses. So you've seen a real decline in the ritual praxis of Christianity. And you're also seeing right now the decline, we are seeing right now the decline of faith in progress and science and reason. So we're people are losing faith essentially in the doctrines of atheism. And with that, people 
are having the experience of massive cognitive dissonance. Carl Jung wrote about how people can only think clearly when their emotional affect is below a certain critical threshold. And people, okay. so when the affective temperature rises, uh, no one can think. And uh, we're getting to the, yeah, so we're getting to the point where no one can think. And he talked about when that happens, you start to see the rise of chimerical wish fulfillment fantasies. And, and slogans, like political catchphrases. and or so Facebook memes. Facebook memes, yes, exactly. And so we're at a point where there are there's a lot of psychic contagion in the world. And it's, uh, it's a pretty bad situation, um, for, especially for those who are sensitive um, to the psychic reality. Uh, and it makes doing basic cleansing rituals and engaging in um, religious practice all the more important for those people, especially people who are sensitive to it. Um, it having the practices really can help mitigate the miasma. Because the other thing, too, is miasma is essentially psychic filth. And so it, it's analogous, I think, to physical filth. It is something that it, you know... It, if you sweat a lot, you're going to get crusty and you're going to smell bad. And that's mm -hmm. not a moral judgment on the person who smells bad. You can reek and be the, a really wonderful person, but you'll still be hard to be around. And so miasma is analogous to that sort of psychic filth. Mm -hmm. uh, and the cleaning techniques of natural magic really help with it. The, the St. John's wort helps to clear miasma. The bay leaves help to clear miasma. And with less miasma, it helps to create a psychic space which is less conducive for psychic contagion and more conducive for clear thought. So what are some things that can happen to um, like a sensitive person um, who maybe has some psychic filth or you know miasma like what are some symptoms of that or some indications like uh, well i'll use an example and i'll try to change the details but there is a place where people live and in that place i've i've lived there a person committed suicide mm -hmm. uh in a very ugly way and in a way where the people didn't find this person's body for a while mm -hmm. and ever since then that place has had a dark energy. Mm. Um, and people there fight a lot. Mm. And people there go mad. And people there all of a sudden find themselves doing lots and lots and lots of drugs. Mm -hmm. Those are the sorts of realities that seem to be around places of psychic contagion. It's just a grubby sort of energy. Mm. And people who are sensitive to it oftentimes find themselves victim to it mm. so they'll be drawn into like they may go mad they may develop a destructive addiction mm -hmm. uh, there may be f other suicides or homicides mm -hmm. and so be simply because the filth while not having a moral connotation definitely does have the connotation of dragging the energy down mm. and so and this is especially true in places where evil magic is practiced. Mm -hmm. Places where evil magic is practiced all have really bad vibes. And this, they draw in these like kind of vortexes mm -hmm. of uh, negativity. Mm -hmm. so, so what do you define by uh, evil magic? I'd say any evil magic that calls upon energy that is destructive, uh, harmful, 
baneful mm -hmm. is strictly speaking evil in the sense that it creates a vortex of these negative energies mm -hmm. and other people get drawn into the vortex especially if they uh, are kind of coasting through life uh, we've all been in places that have really pristine energy like we've all been in old growth forests let's say where it feels very cleansing um, or we've been at you know sacred mountains that feel really nice and we've all been in the dens of like drug addicts um, where well, I mean, <laughs> maybe not everybody has but <laughs> yeah but I've uh, been around like imagine, yeah. yeah skid row alcoholics mm -hmm. uh, or in other places where bad things happen places where bad things happen have a certain vibe right um, and it's not even personal but if you're there and something bad happens everyone will say you were at the place where the bad things happen mm -hmm. and so that's with with an evil magic I think it creates a place where bad things happen so you said baneful. So what's the difference between baneful and like banishing? It's kind of... Oh, uh, they have the same root word. Yeah. Definitely. Um, with a banishing ritual, basically, you are invoking divine light. Like uh, you could say, like specifically, you're creating a Jungian mandala in space. So you're creating an um, elemental cross, mm -hmm. an a cross with its arms equidistant mm -hmm. within a circle, the basic mandala shape. And so you're establishing the mandala shape um, in space and calling in divine light. And Carl Jung talked about, I believe in his, it's in the collection Psychology and Religion, how the mandala shape represents the psychic center of the self that is not the ego. So the higher self, one could say. Mm -hmm. And so you're invoking actually your higher self into the space through doing a banishing ritual. Um, okay. Yeah. It's a little bit less about banishing something out, but creating a space of light where it's like maybe building your gut microflora to create an environment where you're not as likely to get um, an imbalance. You know, like would, you're creating your psychic flora. Yeah, I would compare it to eating garlic because garlic is an herb that both works um, according to what I've read, as an antibiotic, and strictly in the sense that it kills bacteria. Um, David Hoffman talks about it, mm -hmm. Mike, uh, Matthew Wood talks about it, people talk about it as an antibiotic, but the uh, paradoxical thing about garlic is it also helps support beneficial gut mm -hmm. flora. And so garlic, I think, is a herb that's very analogous to a banishing ritual, okay, and it's cool. also been used, Dion Fortune in Psychic Self-Defense mentions um, an old English custom is that when an unpleasant guest comes, you strew out garlic, and after they leave, you take the garlic and you burn it in the wood stove, because it absorbs energy. So garlic, it, it's sort of like it, it's equivalent in a certain, like a psychic sense to eating raw garlic. So banishing ritual, yeah, yeah. And so, but when when, for instance, someone is calling uh, some baneful or harmful energies. Um, that's going to affect the space that they're in and them themselves, mm -hmm. like, like John Michael Greer's Raspberry Jam principle. Yeah, exactly. What is that? The Raspberry Jam principle is the idea that, let's say you're spreading raspberry on a piece of toast. There's no way to spread the raspberry without getting some jam on your finger. Uh, I mean, I, while I like that metaphor, I also think, I always think well, you could wear a glove. Um, so... But then I think it's like you could hire a magician. Let's say you wanted to, like, you know, put a whammy on someone. You could hire a mage to put a whammy on someone, and then my understanding is they get the raspberry jam. They're the glove. Yeah. And you would get the karma. Okay. 
Um, they don't get the karma. They're just a professional, right? You know, it's a witch. It's what they do, you yeah. know? Uh, <laughs> they're a witch. Like, they're they, professional. Yeah, they, 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 they might have more uh, protections in place. and they, they might have their own gloves, you know. For instance, like a, a surgeon in a, in, a, uh, in a hospital is going to be wearing gloves and face masks. And right, but you're still going to catch it. That's the problem. Um, is you're always going to catch it, and you're not only, not only are you going to catch it, the space you live in and work in is also going to catch it. Oh, right. yeah. And so you make the world a worse place mm -hmm. if you do that sort of thing. Um, it's my understanding. Like, other people disagree, and I welcome them to disagree. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, like, in my understanding is in Hoodoo, there's the idea of justified versus unjustified working. Mm -hmm. So you can do the cursy stuff um, if it's justified. Is uh, it like to stop? maybe to stop another magician or someone else who's doing more harm? Yeah. Like, um, how do you justify it in hoodoo? Or... Yeah, I think it's something... I'm not a hoodoo practitioner. Mm -hmm. I've studied um, some of the herbal techniques of hoodoo, but nonetheless, I'm not a hoodoo practitioner, and so I don't have a full grasp on the ethics. I'm, I don't agree with it and, um, personally, but it is something that other people agree right. with, and I'm comfortable with disagreement. Yeah. Right, right. Mm -hmm. But so you've you've written a little booklet on uh, spiritual cleansing and protection. Yeah, and these are some of the some of the things that you talk about in that in that mm -hmm. booklet, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. What what else? Um, what other things? We talked a little bit about cleansing the space, but what about for your person? Like any other tips that listeners could apply from your spiritual cleansing and cleaning and protection book? Yeah, I think that it really. My attitude is, and again, I welcome disagreement, but my attitude is if the moment you make the jump between living in a materialist world, if you are living one, to living into a magical realm, is that it doesn't make sense to have, like, the sort of, like, habitual, irreverent atheism anymore. I think that it makes sense to be in a devotional relationship with a deity. Like, uh, to figure out what deity or deities make you resonate with and want you to worship them uh, and go for it. Um, basically, in the book, I suggest a technique that John Michael Greer laid out where you burn frankincense and pray that a deity who wants to work with you in a beneficial way um, makes it, it known to you and you work with that deity. And the reason for that is, yeah, you can do stuff with plant magic, but the, a deity is much higher on the great chain of being than you are. Mm. They're better than you, they're wiser than you, they're mightier than you. And a lot of deities, especially the deities we know about, want to work with people. Mm. It like helps the same way, I imagine it the same way gardeners like to work with plants, mm -hmm. even ornamental plants, like it because it feeds their soul. I imagine that deities have a similar thing with um, working with sentient embodied creatures. That's a beautiful imagery. Thank you. For that. Uh, you're most welcome. What are, um, who are some deities? Like, what are some examples for folks who maybe don't know? Deities <laughs> yeah, like, I mean, I mean, you could, like, a, a classic example would be, like, Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. Jesus Christ yeah. is a deity. Um, you know, another um, deity would be, like, Kali. Mm -hmm. uh, and, like, all of the Greek deities, all the mm -hmm. Norse deities, all the yeah. Celtic deities. And then you have, like, heroes and saints and so on. Yeah, and they mm -hmm. are also worthy of reverence and also are wiser, mightier, and better than any living person. Mm -hmm. um, but I think the important thing is making the effort and being willing to change. Mm -hmm. Like, I think that once one accepts the presence of deities, it also one has to accept 
one's own human limitations vis-a-vis the deities Mm -hmm. and so that implies that one is has a willingness to change um as one works with the deity Mm. or deities in question Mm, thank you um so you've mentioned in in some prior conversations um why people go to herbalists and you know sometimes it's just a common thing but what do you like maybe they have an infection or Mm -hmm. maybe they have um some type of disease um why do you think people go to herbalists and if you could expand upon that thought i oftentimes okay so i oftentimes feel that the whole thing about herbalists not being doctors is somewhat profound in the sense that I, what I've seen is that when people are willing to go to an herbalist and lay down some bills, it isn't usually because they have some sort of physical ailment. It's because they're spiritually sick mm-hmm. and they are kind of grasping at the absolute margins of what their worldview allows. Mm. Like, people can think, okay, the herbs or plants are not more natural. They're, it's still a materialist arrangement but it allows for a sense of just the like tiniest sliver of the numinous to shine on through Mm. i really feel that people oftentimes go to herbalists because they were not able to find spiritual healing in the um standard modalities yeah, a lot of herbalists probably experience that. They've been to different doctors and different practitioners, maybe acupuncturists and things like that, and then they end up at the herbalist after, you know, they, they experience nothing else has worked, you know. Yeah, and to my mind, it's the reason they have that exact trajectory mm-hmm. is they're moving from less and less rational means, less and less materialist means. And that's because I think that the problem of miasma and um, psychic contagion is one of the probably one of the most pressing problems i think that this goes into like like some of the like real problems with the european colonization of the americas is that i like the feng shui is really bad we've not been able to maintain the um cultus of sacred spaces mm. or, or the deities of the land and yeah. so i think that and while that I think that was mitigated in a big way when Christianity was still a big part of the of the normal culture. But if we look out at the nor, at the culture of the United States, it's no longer Christian. Yeah, so it's the the religion of Christianity has been superseded by the religion of science and progress. Yeah, but that even now is starting to to uh, wear thin. Yeah, we're gonna. I think we're gonna see um, some really freaky stuff. We're already seeing freaky stuff, and I think we're gonna see more freaky stuff because people don't do well when their worldview falls apart. Like, uh, it's. I think there's a real meaningful division between people who have like an emotional and spiritual stake in the status quo and people who don't. Mm. I don't even know to what degree communication is possible between the two. It's. A really serious issue some people have everything invested in their inner world on this narrative of perpetual progress and without that they're just like their inner own inner world is howling wilderness and maybe the wildness of some plants can help be a bridge to a new worldview 
it might be. I think some people grasp towards it. Like I, I, and I certainly hope that people can utilize plants as a bridge, um, and to whatever degree of um, polytheism or animism that is accessible to them, or any just any sort of spirituality, really. I wonder, like, I do wonder how many people will be who are d devotees of progress will be able to make that jump, right. uh, since it's such a radical shift in the entire world feeling. Mm. And maybe that's something herbalists have to offer. I definitely be that bridge. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that herbalists definitely do. I think that's also why I emphasize that a lot of times people go to herbalists. For spiritual problems rather than gross material ones uh, is like not even I don't mean like psychological problems I mean real spiritual problems like there's like a hole in their soul that they're like all their life is draining through like I, I think that that's a huge portion of why people seek out alternative practitioners mm -hmm. it's because they there's no way they can fit their problems into a materialist uh, paradigm, and yet that's all they have to think with. So you've also been working on a uh, another booklet called Towards an Herbal Theurgy, and maybe mm -hmm. this is this is uh, the kind of thing that somebody can uh, use to, to use herbs mm -hmm. towards uh, changing themselves, transforming themselves. So what what is uh, an herbal theurgy? What, is, what does that mean? Okay, so um, magic in the Western tradition has two major branches, the theurgic and the thaumaturgic. Theurgic comes from um, theos, or and it means God working, or divine working. And thaumis, uh, thaumaturgy comes from thaumis, or wonder, and so it's wonder working. So let, let's say you want to get a job, right? You want to get a job, and you can like light a green candle at dawn, at like for fifteen minutes on a Friday, you know, morning, and do that until someone offers you work, and you take that work, and then all of a sudden you're making money. Like that's a working a wonder, and um, that so that'd be thaumaturgy. There's nothing wrong with it, <clears throat> especially if you like think about the ethical ramifications of what you're doing, uh, but. It's not necessarily inherently um, reaching towards the divine. Uh, theurgy is explicitly reaching towards the divine. Um, you can have a more narrow definition of theurgy. Like if you look at um, the Roman Catholic Mass, right, where they, uh, the traditional one, where they draw in the divine energy into the wafers, into the wine, that is classical theurgy. It's taken literally from Dionysian rites um, where they did the same thing, um, is my understanding of the history of it. That is a form of God working in the more narrow sense. You could also th say that every human contains within them something which is divine, even if it's at a very muted um, and infinitesimal um, quantity as compared to a deity. And so I consider theurgy to also be, um, I consider it broader to also include things that improve the character of a person, since I think that our souls which have some sort of touch of divinity to them, they express themselves in our lives through our character. And herbs are able in a whole bunch of different ways to help people work with and change their character. Can you give us an example of a, like a, how a particular herb might be able to do that? Yeah, I think this is an, actually a really interesting example because it's one that rationalist science also um, speaks to. and. 
with um, Nicholas Culpepper, the Ren English Renaissance um, astrological herbalist, considered um, Jupiter to rule um, judgment. And it was used by the ancient Romans um, to, as an offering to the god Jupiter. <clears throat> and he also considered it to strengthen the brain exceedingly. What herb is this? What? what? Oh, sage. Sage. Okay. Sorry, I didn't say that, but sage uh, was used in... Um, and modern, like, I believe on, like, PubMed, they have an article about how sage, for whatever reasons, I'm not a doctor or a scientist, I don't know um, the details, but it helps improve memory, right? Um, and so you see an herb that generally increases one's memory, and through memory increases one's capacity for discernment and judgment. Um, and so that's an herb that um, improves character. And then um, in the Yoga of Herbs, um, which is a really helpful book for bridging Ayurveda and Western herbal practices, you see sage li listed as an herb that drinking it dispels gloomy emotions. It calms the heart. It brings clarity to the mind. Uh, and in my own life, when I'm in a real bad funk, you bet I reach for a cup of sage tea because I find it works. It like, you know how people smudge sage? Um, I feel like it smudges my inner realm. And so the sage changes one's character in a real way. Um, and all herbs, if you take them, change one's character in a subtle way. Mm -hmm. um, Nicholas Culpepper did a lot of really helpful work characterizing the sort of planetary energies that the herbs carry. So, um, like, time um, was used to increase courage, mm -hmm. traditionally, and it is ruled by Venus, and um, that's an interesting thing. Like, people don't tend to think of, you know, Venus and um, courage is synonymous, but I think those people, if they think about it, like, if they've ever asked anyone out on a date, they know very well that <laughs> Venus and courage are very much linked. Yeah. And so time improves, um, like, courage, and it also, um, Ma Matthew Wood considered it specific for when people have stuck unresolved issues. It's the herb that people take for nightmares. Mm. Um, and so you see that every herb has a capacity to change character in certain directions. And my work with um, the little booklet Towards an Herbal Theurgy was an attempt to lay down a basic framework for understanding uh, the ways that different herbs may affect character. So, so yeah, so uh, if magic is the change in consciousness in accordance with will, mm -hmm. you're consciously choosing particular herbs to uh, augment or adjust your uh, character. Yes, exactly. Uh, and the traditions really give some good um, framework for doing it. Like, um, lemon balm was considered by... Um, many to be a longevity herb that also made people smarter like it um nicholas culpepper considered it um both he considered it to expel melancholy vapors from the heart and arteries um and the heart he considered to be the um place where the vital spirit the enlivening spirit resided and paracelsus the great western alchemist considered lemon balm to contain the um to be able to recharge the mortal oil from which the wick of life burns. And so you see it as a longevity herb, but then you also see it um, 
used for strengthening memory. And also it's um, in herbal alchemy, it's traditionally the first herb that's prepared because it has an effect of making alchemical symbols more um, easy to understand. It's also ruled by Jupiter. And so we see both with sage and with uh, lemon balm, this sort of emphasis on memory, this emphasis on judgment, this emphasis on understanding the full picture um, and like a full picture in its wholeness. Mm. And there's like an emphasis on like the integrity of a person. So you see like the integrity of memory, the integrity of body, like um, oak, white oak. Um, another jovial herb was used by um, Dr. Bach for severe alcoholics, especially when there was a loss of integrity and personality. Mm. And so you start to see these sort of like patterns emerge with different herbs as well, uh, which I found was part of the reason I included um, the Kabbalistic literature that Dion Fortune and John Michael Greer have made so accessible in my booklet because the larger groupings help, like Chesed, which is the um, sphere in the Tree of Life associated with Jupiter, um, also rules the memory. Mm. Right. And so the magical traditions, what I found so compelling in writing the book is that the magical traditions actually help to contextualize and enlarge upon the existing herbal traditions. Mm, like connecting the dots between the two. Yes, exactly. That's really great. So besides your two books uh, that you've written, what... Um, what books would you recommend to people who are interested in getting more into natural magic, plant magic, um, and and these uh, other ways of using plants? I would recommend Matthew Wood's two volumes of Earthwise Herbal and also his um, The Practice of Traditional Western Medicine to get a good basis of the uh, Western tradition of herbalism. You can't, I really don't think you can make a clean separation between natural magic and herbalism. Mm -hmm. And I think it's foolish to even, I, I mean, I personally consider it somewhat foolish to try. I think that um, if one is looking at an herbal practice in terms of healing, it doesn't matter if it's placebo effect. It doesn't matter if it's because of some mechanism. The importance is, are the results, not the, um, not the specific um, methodology of the results. That's my attitude. So I think of herbalism and natural magic as coexisting hand in hand, um, and one can't even really separate them. So Matthew Wood gives a really good grounding in the Western herbal tradition in a very accessible way. Um, I would also consider John Michael Greer's Encyclopedia of Natural Magic and Cat Ironwood's um, book on hoodoo, um, root and herb magic to be also really indispensable. Also, Maud Greaves, a modern herbal, has a lot of really important folkloric um, details that I think really, really help. So I can, I mean, that would set someone back probably about $150. It would, you know, it's a lot of money, but if you're gonna be practicing magic, um, I'm sorry to say you're probably gonna have to also have a library. <laughs> <laughs> and it's gonna cost you some coins, so yeah. that's just how it is. In addition to books, um any other practices that you think are a really good like intro to practical magic natural magic um yeah i think recommend? yeah i think it's just spending time with the plants you intend to use and mm -hmm. trying to communicate with them and letting the plants teach you is not some place you can go wrong like people get really jiggy when they're coming from to herbalism from a materialist standpoint about like the doctrine of signatures what is that the doctrine of signatures is the idea that okay um the backup 
let's look at an animal embryo, right? Okay. It's curled up. Look, it's curled up. It's not facing outward. It's mm-hmm. curled in. Mm-hmm. And we do not photosynthesize sunlight. Mm-hmm. We have a solar plexus mm-hmm. that breaks down the solar energy into things into nutrients we can absorb. Plants are not the same way. Mm. A cotyledon of a plant opens outward, yeah, yeah. and they don't have a solar plexus. They do not have a symbolic sun within them. Mm-hmm. They just open up towards the sun. Mm-hmm. We have an inner world that defines us. Like it's, um, I think um, many people. I think one of the triumphs of um, the past hundred and fifty years has been the idea that how we look doesn't define who we are on the inside. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's a really important idea because mm-hmm. humans, you know, are animals and animals have these various symbolic valences. Um, plants are different. Plants mm-hmm. are defined entirely or almost entirely and perceptibly by their outer world, mm-hmm. by their outer appearance. Um, they open to the sun. They are um, part of the living vasculature of the earth. The entire biosphere Mm. is their circulatory system. They are literally perceptibly part, um, or their their symbols are right there to view. And so the Doctrine of Signatures basically says that every plant has various signatum that um, allows for people to understand them. So for instance, like walnuts might be good for your brain. Because they look like a brain. Exactly. And um, uh, plantain looks like a tongue. And so um, it's considered to be an herb with a dental affinity, which I've found to be very true um, in my own life. Uh, and the thing is, these doctrines work. Um, and even if they don't work uh, in a, like an entirely materialist way, I've never seen someone... I mean, personally, I've never seen any... Or I've never seen nor heard of anyone harmed by the doctrine of signatures. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it really, it, it offends materialists because it indicates that there is a um, divine order that inheres perceptibly in the world. And, um, but I think that spending time, if you're gonna be working with magic um, at all, it requires to some extent to accept that there is some sort of divine order that inheres in the world. And if you're going to be working with plants, I think that the plants can teach you more about them than any book. And I think that the plants appreciate the time that one takes to, to apprehend them and to see what the plant will teach themselves. And the plants are outwardly focused and outwardly growing. And so you can see that the, um, like the oak tree is really strong and it's mighty, you know. Mm. It the wood is hard, mm. or that the uh, that the cinquefoil plant looks really tense, mm. uh, and etc. Like there, it's it's good to just do the ones work oneself with this and to think one's own thoughts because I think that's the other thing too. It's like I think that it's always really sad when one would just you know read an herbalist and only consider what they say is true without engaging with the plant and coming to your own relationship and your own thoughts. I love that. Yeah, that's really great. So thank you for all of this, uh, this knowledge and information. Um, where can people go to find your books and uh, your blog? 
Well, currently, because of a certain um, publishing um, upgrade, I am um, self-publishing my own book through zines. Um, I can be reached at violetcabra.dreamwith.org, I believe is the address. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm happy to sell my zines, um, including um, Spiritual Cleaning and Protection and Towards an Herbal Theurgy. And also, thank you both so much for having me. Absolutely. It's been a lovely conversation. It's yeah. been a lot of fun. Yeah, thank, thank you, you so much. much. We'll, we'll put all the details of where to find Violet in the show notes. And thank you again, Violet. My pleasure.